Greetings, dear listener, and welcome to this week's episode of Gomology. This week we're going back in time. We're going to be talking bicycles, women's rights, and dresses with hidden features. So um, stick along for the ride. Hi, welcome to another episode of Gomology, a podcast about clothes and stuff. Now, my guest today is someone I have been wanting to talk to for a while, and today we are definitely in the clothes zone, although kind of in the stuff zone as well, but we'll get to that. Kat, would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, I'm Kat Young-Nicol. I'm a reader in sociology at Goldsmiths at the University of London. Now, that sounds kind of like the boring description of your job. Can we sort of get the nitty gritty of it? Yeah, I think I have um, a really great job. Um, I am in a fantastic um, sociology department um, with people who do all sorts of really creative um, research. And my research, um, perhaps it might be indicative to tell you that I often get called a cycling sewing sociologist, which is quite a combination of uh, (laughs) elements that are very important to me. It certainly is. Uh, We'll get to the clothes in a bit, but sociology and was it ethno studies you said it covers quite a wide field because i was reading your bio and you had also done something on homemade wireless networks and i think i recently realized that um invention has been central to all my work all the way through from my um probably my ma through to my phd and postdoc and now and through my teaching and now with this research projects um that i'm doing now and invention uh, in terms of the ways of which people have been inventive with their approach to, I think, particularly interesting, mundane and ordinary things in their lives and turning them into things that uh, do the unexpected or do workarounds to things that they've found as barriers to um, things that they want to do in life or they're being limited or restricted in some ways or they're just really curious about what else stuff can do. So uh, yes, I've been doing hanging out with inventive people who've been immensely um, inspiring to me and have really kind of fueled my curiosity in the ways in which I too can be inventive in my own practice. And lately this has sort of taken you into the world of clothes, which I don't think is a new thing for you, but... Uh, Yes and no. Um, Studying clothing was certainly not what I'd been doing um, all the way through more of my formal education. Um, But of course, I, you know, I like clothes. I like to wear clothes. um, But, and I've been sewing my own clothes for quite a long time my mum taught me but I kept those parts of my life separate from my research Um, but I was studying um, I was doing a postdoc at the University of East London and uh, and again I think it was a just an awesome postdoc I got to cycle around the UK hanging around with cyclists um, just learning about cycling cultures in different places and, um, and of course, I was chatting to them about things that I thought were super important, such as, you know, the, the bicycle, infrastructure, policy, all those kind of things. And I was really surprised by how often they kept on talking about what they wore. They kept on telling me about their clothes. And I, I was, it was really unprovoked. And I found it super interesting, but just really unexpected. Um, and so lots of people would talk about... Um, 
clothes that they'd either uh, managed to find and worked really well on or off the bicycle, or more often, and women were particularly um, articulate about this, they would talk about um, not being able to find appropriate cycle wear, um, either what was available in the shops, and this was 10 years ago, and although um, arguably lots has changed since then, um, people would still say this is still an issue in terms of um, the provision for more diverse um, forms of cycling and cyclists. But 10 years ago, it was really um, something that people were talking about in a very um, uh, robust way. So women were talking about how they were finding it um, challenging to find clothes or they were hacking and adapting clothes that they could find. Um, but they're also really critical of what was called at the time the shrink it and pink it range of women's cycle wear, <laughs> which was basically low-tech and had a flower or was a particularly pastel colour. Um, oh. So it was really quite an issue. Um, and so I thought I might jump back to find out, you know, where these, you know, whether these anxieties are new or whether, as many sociologists um, often find, is that many of these problems have been around for a long time and they just get performed and articulated in different ways. So I jumped back 130 years or so to the advent of popular cycling in this country to look at what people wore when they first started to ride their bikes. Was it easy to, to discover what they wore 130 years ago? So we're talking about 1900, 1890 or so? Yes, yeah. Because cycling had been around, um, you know, for much of that, that previous century, but um, it really was the cycling boom that swept the nation in the 1890s, um, which I was really interested in because it became more more widespread and more accessible. Um and uh, it was at that point with the safety bicycle, which is very similar to the bicycle we ride today with the two matching wheels, that um, just uh, there was just much more discussion about who, who could ride, where they could ride, what they should wear, and um, how and who could become, you know, who could claim this identity of cyclist. Okay. And that really occupied a lot of the press, lots of public um debate and discussion um, was through all sorts of, you know, printed media that became an easy easy way to dive into the archives and explore. Okay, so was there a real outrage at the time that women might want to, to go cycling? There was such an outrage at the time, which <laughs> made it such an interesting thing to dive into. Um, yeah, I just um, because for much of that century... Um, uh, middle and upper class women were really encouraged to not do anything particularly active. You know, um, there'd been an awful lot of restrictions on women's freedom of movement. You know, up until this period, middle and upper class um, women's roles in Victorian society were very much defined by the moral responsibility of reproduction. Um, and very much located in the footprint of the home, so the caring and bearing of children. They really were not encouraged to venture into education, into business or into politics. And for much of that century also, medical professionals had been arguing that exercise was um, unnecessary and even unhealthy um, for women because they really believed that they had a very limited um, uh, body of energy that they shouldn't waste um, when they really should be directing it to their more important matrimonial duties. So you can imagine then women wanting to cycle was in direct kind of contrast to those kind of 
fairly entrenched beliefs in many parts of society. Um, but you can also just, you know, have a sense of just how it must have felt for some of them that got a chance to ride bicycles, to move at speeds, at new times and in new places than ever experienced before. And for some, uh, they managed to, you know, escape their chaperones. So, you know, it might have been the first time ever to also have private personal space. So once women have had it... Exactly. Once women have had a a taste of that, there was really no going back. Um, However, there was more than just these social issues. There was also the sartorial ones, what to wear on a piece of moving machinery, like the complex nature of a bicycle. And this wasn't merely a how will I look? It was quite practical as well, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. You know, the practicality, you know, women's... um, uh, ordinary fashions at the time were, you know, a whole range of, of styles, but ostensibly just a lot of stuff. So they were wearing um, floor-length A-line skirts, um, lots of heavy layered petticoats, uh, tightly laced um, corsets, tailored blouses, vests, uh, jackets, capes, gloves, veils, hats, and more, perhaps. So you can imagine just just yeah. the incompatibility of all of that with the moving machinery of wheels and pedals and uh, chain rings. Sounds like it might have been a bit risky as well, trying to cycle on an old bicycle with long dresses and whatnot. It was incredibly challenging. And lots of newspapers were filled with um, terribly detailed accounts of women suffering disfigurement and even death as a result of crashes caused by malfunctioning clothes. Like uh, newspaper accounts had stories of just skirts getting caught in chain rings or just catching on, um, uh, you know, around pedals and just causing these awful crashes, which um, reaffirmed for many parts of society that women were just um, technologically incompetent as opposed to it being but, you know, perhaps something more to do with what they were wearing. So yeah. lots were still very keen to cycle. So some um, very bravely took on what was called rational dress at the time, which uh, rational dress advocates had been around for, you know, at, at least 100 years before and longer, advocating for what they called rational dress over irrational fashion. And they, um, again, had a whole range of different styles, but really they just wanted – uh, women and men, though were for both sexes, to um, to just uh, reduce some of the layers of um, materials and um, uh, just uh, complexity of clothes, just to allow them to be, you know, more active and more flexible while dressed in all their kind of, you know, conventional clothing. But with women's clothes, they had much more work cut out for them. But but. Um, Rational dress was comprised of pretty much, you know, um, shorter skirts or even no skirt and swapping your skirt and petticoats for a pair of bloomers or knickerbockers. Um, Some were advocating removal of the corset or maybe a sporting corset um, or, you know, something that just allowed for more uh, um, rib expansion and breathing um, and just fewer of those layers that I mentioned before. It sounds pretty... uh... Yeah, I mean, a sporting corset, <laughs> really. Yeah, they did exist. They did exist. And, you know, some people um, found them to be really um, 
well, certainly they must have felt very different to a conventional corset and maybe a step in, you know, in different directions for some wearers. But really, those changes just still would have been remarkable when you think about what they were wearing in order to enable them to be more active and sporty. However, wearing some of these clothes um, didn't what might have meant it was safer and more comfortable on a bicycle, but it meant that it did expose wearers to um, social dangers because um, while some parts of society were quite shocked and threatened by the sight of a conventionally dressed woman riding a bicycle, um, they were really, some of them were quite horrified by a woman wearing what looked to be masculine clothes while doing a masculine activity. Um, so they reported um, having um, verbal abuse and even physical abuse um, as a result of, you know, some people just finding it too upsetting. I suppose it sort of sounds quite faintly ridiculous to us now because bloomers and knickerbockers were basically just baggy trousers. But I imagine at the time this was really pretty tense and serious. Yeah, I think it was quite shocking because it was then um, this, some people were threatened by this idea of women um, not only were moving into men's privileged lifestyles and saw it as a rejection of their um, conventional roles in the family, looking after children, caring for the home. And and it seems a little extreme now, but um, there were fears about um, women uh, rejecting all of those natural roles and therefore being a threat to society and humanity at large, because who would do that? So um, cycling, as you can imagine, might was not just about riding your bicycle. It's It really sparked much larger debates and discussion about uh, women's role in society. Yeah, I can sort of see how that would uh, wouldn't want to give the women too many of these freedoms and whatnots. And but your project, um, bikes and bloomers, looked at this and in a wider perspective. I think. Yeah, it really did because, as I was saying, I was chatting to lots of. Um, uh, contemporary cyclists and they were talking about issues with clothes and I jumped back um, and started to dive into some archives and I hadn't really done a lot of archival research up to that point I'd most, basically been hanging around with live people to that point chatting with them and asking <laughs> questions and uh -huh. then suddenly I was investigating you know the lives of people who had had long passed and I was trying to piece together traces um of what they were interested in, what they cared about, what concerned them um, in the archives. And I found it um, incredibly exciting and um, laborious and incredibly challenging as well because in particular when you go looking for um, uh, lesser-known um, uh, citizens' stories, you know, there's not, not a lot there. You know, you have to, like, really piece together fragments that are, you know, distributed across different archives but that's when I stumbled across um, the patent archives because I found that, of course, people and particularly women have been so inventive in order to do the things they want to do. You know, they've always worked around barriers and limitations to their freedoms. And, uh, and that's why I was curious to see even the fact that there were so many accounts of um, all these restrictions in their way, but just this 
you know, sheer joy that cycling gave women. And the bicycle has often been talked about as this vehicle of emancipation for women. What I discovered was that cycle wear also was this vehicle of emancipation for women. And not only to enable them to ride bicycles, but also in how it, it, um, the, all these conditions came together and became, you know, ripe for invention. You know, they had to not, you couldn't just go and buy cycle wear, you had to make it yourself. And in order to make it yourself, you had to think about how your body worked differently on this moving machinery. You had to think about how um, how you felt, how brave you felt um, riding around in particular contexts, given the fact that society, parts of society responded in such, you know, violent ways. Um and so, you know, there were real challenges and these problems that had to be solved. And I think that's when I stumbled across the patent archive because it turned out that lots of women not only imagined, designed, made and wore lots of radical new forms of cycle wear, but they also patented their designs. So the patent archive became this um, remarkable source of women's inventiveness um, that enabled me to access, you know, what they cared about, you know, you know, first-hand accounts of uh, women's um, uh, points in their lives where they uh, could tell us about the problems, you know, what they wanted to do but they were restricted by, how they intended to solve them, um, a little bit about who they were, where they lived, um, what vocation, if by chance they happened to record that, which they didn't offer do for women 110 years ago, but sometimes they got those into these documents. And then they pr provide detailed step-by-step -step instructions for future users to replicate their ideas. So, you know, there's an abundance of information there for a very curious social scientist. And I got stuck there for a while. I'm fascinated by how they use the patent office there almost as a peer-to-peer -peer file sharing system today where it wasn't so much i think to protect what they had invented but a way to document it and allow others to recreate it because the patents wouldn't have stopped people making it for is it 14 years before it runs out and that was still the case then um it's just that they were obviously kind of patents are a real um contradictory artifacts you know they are making something public in order to keep it private you mm. know they are kind of sharing something in order to protect it um, so they were certainly doing that then even though obviously the legal system was very different then to what it is now in terms of patenting um, but what it enabled them to do was to um, uh, you know carve a place potentially into the world of business as well and um, for some you know there was an opportunity um, to radically change their life course because many, um, many people at that time, particularly women, had their lives already mapped out for them. You know, um, and this was a chance if you had an invention that suddenly got you know, commercialised and distributed, then that would have been a remarkable you know, change in your life. And it came about um, the boom in cycling um, uh, you know, maps onto a... Um, a big change in you know, the Patent Reform Act that happened you know, shortly before this and all the, also the Women's um, Property Act, Married Women's Property Act. So there are, these are moments of which these, there were seismic shifts in uh, women's rights. And, I mean, lots more was still to come because I'm talking about kind of the 1890s. But um, in terms of um, uh, in Britain, 
there were opportunities for some women to actually claim their own ideas for themselves, not have them under the husband's, father's or brother's names. Um, there, there was the advent of the patent agent as, um, as a new profession. And you can actually see on a lot of patents the same patent agents supporting women. So I'm sh- I haven't found documentation of this, but, um, you know, it, you can speculate that um, there might have been a network of understanding who might be more helpful than other people within this. Um, patenting became cheaper and kind of easier to do, um, whereas prior to, you know, the Patent Reform Act, you did need a patron, you did need quite a lot of money, and you did need to be in, in the know-how to be able to, you know, lodge an idea. Um, but, you know, in the 1890s, there was just this opportunity to end. There was also not only the opportunity to patent, but there was also um, this recognition that patenting something small could be um, really profitable. It didn't have to be a huge – it didn't have to be a ship you can actually pattern, you know, a, a button system or something like that, or a toy, or some. And so, newspapers were filled with extraordinarily exciting stories of patentees, inventors who had come up with something that then suddenly everyone wanted. So that kind of discourse must have been um, seriously exciting and motivating for people. I guess, in many ways, it was a sort of golden age of inventions and. Uh... Yeah, yeah, I think so. I think, you know, from reading about this period of time, it must have felt kind of like some of us might have felt around the turn of our last century with the dot-com boom. You know, this idea that suddenly this different medium comes along and it could just transform, you know, parts of our lives in different ways. So, you know, the, the newspapers are certainly filled with so many stories of people coming up with ideas that people couldn't imagine life before you know, that idea would come along. Yeah. So, yeah, a very similar feeling about this. So having browsed through all the patents, what sort of um, things did you find of interest there which you could use onwards? There's so much treasure in the patent archives. Um, it's so easy to get It's so easy to get distracted in patent archives because of um, just, uh, yeah, the treasure that's hidden in there. But I um, stumbled across a whole range of patents for cycleware um, and um, I've uh, written about quite a lot of this. But one thing that I really got uh, quite um, caught up with was what I call convertible um, costumes, so convertible cycleware. And these garments ambitiously aimed for uh, respectable fashion, so, you know, conventional uh, women's uh, clothing that wouldn't have looked out of place um, walking in, in a high street or going to visit someone's house. Um, but it was also safe and comfortable on a bicycle. So they're, they're really trying for two things in one. Um, so these uh, inv- inventors engineered technical systems into the very infrastructure of the skirts um, that enabled wearers to secretly switch from um, streetwear into cyclewear and back again. And uh, I got—I remember the moment where I stumbled across those in the archive, and I did le- let, uh, let out a small like whoop of delight <laughs> in a very quiet mm-hmm. space because they just looked like the kind of things like many contemporary cyclists would still love. You know, we're still dealing with, you know, a, 
a lot of those issues. How do you wear something that is safe and comfortable on a bike but doesn't mark you out as too much of a cyclist when you get somewhere, say go shopping or go to an art gallery or something? Very few people want to spend their days walking around in, you know, Lycra, for example. But so what's the medium ground? What's something that you could wear between? So convertible clothing look like something I should really investigate. And I'm curious, I mean, you said mentioned that all these patents were filed and there was a hope that something would become of them, that they'd make a business out of it. Did you find any indication that any of these actually became a viable business? Yeah, I did for um, quite a few of them. Not all, because um, the challenge with doing patent studies for anybody is that um, when an inventor, you might be able to trace lots of things about the inventor up until their invention gets um, becomes successful, becomes um, you know uh, bought by a distributor and um, or and commercialized, and then they might change its name, and then suddenly uh-huh. all of that, all of those little um, threads go a little bit, you know, they end, you know, the the trail goes a bit um, dead. So, um, but I found a few examples whereby. Um, big companies came along and picked up some of these patents but still kept the inventor's name, which was a really great um, thing for me to keep tracing. And one of those um, was uh, Alice Louisa Bygrave, who was um, a dressmaker from Brixton who invented um, a really remarkable convertible uh, skirt. Um, She grew up in Chelsea and then moved to Brixton, which is she patented this... um, design but her motivations and her influences from her family life um, are really indicative for how she then came up with her particular solution to what became known as the dress problem so she grew up in a watch and clock um, uh, making um, shop and uh, mending repair shop with her father and and brothers who were um, uh, working in that her mother was a dressmaker and one of her brothers and her sister-in-law also were racing cyclists, professional racing cyclists. Oh. And her sister-in-law's story is a whole other fantastic um, tangent um, of um, just a remarkable uh, account of if you think that it was difficult for women to cycle generally just wearing normal clothes, let alone wearing rational clothes, eking out a life as a racing cyclist was is something to be really <laughs> appreciative wow. of at the time. So you can imagine all of those um, influences at home. And uh, Alice Louisa uh, uh, Bygrave uh, clearly wants to cycle, sees this as a challenge to um, to what she could wear on a bicycle. So she comes up with a convertible system that has a pulley, um, a pulley system sewn into the front and the rear um, central seams of the skirt. It has cords at the waistband, it has weights in the hems, and it has two stitch channels whereby you pull the cords at your waist when you get close to your bicycle. It ruches up the front, you tie them off. The back cords are actually around the front, so it's very convenient. You don't have to like, you know, try and find them. You also pull those cords, it ruches up the back of the skirt um, and just clears all of that material away from the moving uh, machinery of the bicycle. And um, But it creates this kind of really attractive, what she called festooning effect down along the hips. So it actually hides your bloomers while you're cycling. You get off your bicycle, you drop these cords, the weights take them to the floor, and it became known as the um, Bygrave Quick Change Cycling Skirt. <laughs> I love those old names as well. (laughs) 
And, and we know about it because um, Jaeger, the British fashion house still in existence today, saw the benefits of it in 1895, picked it up and commercialised it under her name. And it was sold around England and Scotland. It was sold in the UK and it even made its way to Sydney and Melbourne and it was sold there. Wow. And I'm guessing the patent included full details on how to replicate this. Were you able to resist? No, not at all. No, because I honestly, when you find these um, patents, what you want to do is go find these examples. And after finding evidence of the fact they were made and distributed and quite popular, um, I thought they have to be around somewhere. And I still haven't found them. So it's not that they cannot be around. They're just not in any of the archives that I've been to. It could possibly be the account, which is something that I speculate on, and I've talked to many curators, that um, these many of these convertible garments are, are so um, interestingly unique in that you may not even know you've got a convertible garment if you don't know what it's doing. So Because yeah. these inventors were very much designing for something that was hidden in plain sight. So to not know that it's convertible is a very successful invention in this case. So if this has just got some cords, they may also, you know, they may be broken, you know, so they may even not be on show. It's got stitch channels that might just look like a seam. It may have weights in the hem that might just be a little bit like that strange, you know, not anything that's particularly um, indicative of an invention. And I think there might be lots of these things still around everywhere and I'm, I'm in search of them. But yes, I had the patent and I thought, she's telling me what to do. Maybe I should give this a go. I'm sort of also thinking that these were very subversive underground garments. Maybe they're all still hidden away. That's what I think. I think they could still be around, except that also (laughs) talking to creators, and I've done lots of talk about this, to... um, cyclists and you know cycle wear gets worn out too if you really love something and you wear it a lot it's going to disappear in different ways even with lots of mending and clothing at the time then was incredibly precious um you know people you know if it wasn't already worn away and patched and mended if you stopped wearing it or got something else then you'd probably adapt and change it into another garment Um, or it was bought and sold. You know, there was quite a good second-hand market for all kinds of clothes. So, um, you know, often the things that are in museums tend to be the things that weren't worn as much, you know, as opposed to things that were worn to, you know, they disappeared, which could have been the case for really popular and um, appreciated pieces of cycle wear. But you had the instructions for making it. Yes. How did uh, how did that work out? Well, I did something that I now call speculative sewing, um, which is where I talk about combining um, re- research with reconstruction and kind of reimagining um, of, of historic, mm-hmm. you know, data. So we, uh, my, um, so I got a team of sewing social scientists, and we stitched together theory, methods, and data into objects described in the patent, and then we examine all of it as like three-dimensional arguments. So we kind of enfold this into the research practice, and I'm constantly asking in the process of doing this, what do we learn from making that we wouldn't have got from just reading the patent? So we asked lots of questions along the way, and I also talk about it as interviewing the the inventor 
Because as I said, I we often talk to live people, and if you you know if you you suddenly kind of discover something along the way, and you can always get back in contact and ask another question, or if you're doing ethnography, you go and check you know that what the insights that you're getting are you know being recognised by the people that you're spending time with. But I couldn't do that with people who you know were living at this time. So you know making their artifacts um, was a way of spending time with them you know, to dwell, you know, with them, to ask them questions through their invention. Um, and we made a lot of mess. We made a lot of mistakes. We took <laughs> tangents. And we reflected that maybe they did this as well, right, in trying to work things out. Because as much as the um, patent is really helpful, I think also that the inventor also deliberately leaves out certain amounts because, you know, oh. they are making these things public, and there was a lot of replication and borrowing, as um, you know, there is today. Um, so there's certain elements that, as we go along, we're a bit like, what are they assuming that we know? What are they deliberately leaving out? What um, are we having to put in? You know, so it's right. a it's a really discursive and dialogic ex- expression of um, of uh, practice. When you said social sociological sewing. It sounded, well, that sounds like so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Sociological sewing, but also speculative sewing. So we are like just constantly asking questions because um, we, at no point do we say in this project that what we make is the perfect replica of these patents um, because I, I don't know. We don't know for sure. We're doing our absolute best with these and we question and we and sometimes we do multiple versions of something to see, you know, other ways that you could do it. Um, and when I perform in costume and show people, you know, sometimes, oh, actually all the time, someone will say something or do something and I'll think, ah, I hadn't thought about that at all. So these are really generative, you know, um, uh, artifacts of of history rather than being some perfect replica and also I'm not a dress historian no one in my team is a dress historian and we're not trying to make perfect um, replications of 1890s sewing pieces what we're interested in is the utilitarian um, inventions which you know that were being claimed in these patents like how did these things work how are they how are these technologies put into these garments um what did they do what happens when you make them and how does that change the ways in which we might be reading other things and trying to get a sense as to the problem that was being solved so what did you actually make or what what did you end up with after much speculating yeah well in this project i focused um on five inventors um all around the uk um, that were and all their different styles were particularly indicative of a whole range of ways that uh, women and others designing for women were attempting to solve this problem using convertible cycle wear. Um, so they were um, five women um, um, all the way up and down the country, um, and they were doing um, mo- mostly about. Well, mostly about skirts, but there was a skirt that turned, that came completely away from the body and became this lovely high high necklined ruched cape. Um, but most of the skirts generally stayed on the body and did something. So, like Bygraves um, had this pulley system. Um, Julia Gill was a court dressmaker from um, North London, and she had an A-line skirt that had um, uh, 
she it turned into what she called a semi-skirt. So it just has rings and ribbons hidden underneath the lower decorative flounce that pulled up to the waist and gathered around and formed this kind of bubble skirt, which is mm -hmm. kind of wild. Um, the Hen Frances Henrietta Muller was a gentlewoman from um, Maidenhead, and uh, she was unique in that she didn't just do the skirt. She did thought the jacket needed some help as well and also thought the bloomer needed some help. So she provides a three-piece cycling suit. Oh. She turns out to be an amazing uh, women's rights activist who's quite well known for all her other um, extraordinary actions, such as running a women's newspaper because she didn't think women had enough voice in the public sphere and she paid them equal rates to men doing similar jobs. She got arrested for not paying her tax because she didn't feel she was appropriately <laughs> represented, of course. Um, and, uh, yeah, she was just otherwise remarkable. Spoke six languages. She was just oh. great. Um, but she – and she obviously thought that you couldn't just dismantle the patriarchy with just one pattern, so she had three garments. And, uh -huh. uh, and this suit was is very conventional looking, but, again, the skirt folds up to the waist in these, you know, button and loop mechanisms. Uh, the jacket also converts and the um, the bloomers, she thought it was just too many layers. So she actually made a – she joined uh, the blouse and the bloomer into an all-in-one, like a, a onesie effectively. Um, okay. And she had very snazzy buttons at the back to allow you to, you know, uh, relieve mm. yourself while out cycling, which is also thinking through, you know, many of the challenges that women face, not wanting to be stuck at home if you're, you've got this freedom to yeah. move on your bicycle. So, um, yeah, her gum, and she was a huge advocate for pockets. Most of them are, but she was like, you should have seven and feel free to put more on if you needed them. So, yeah. Now, you mentioned women's rights, and obviously that was important then, as it is now. Do you have an impression that this might have set something in motion, this oh. willingness or this desire to cycle? Absolutely, yes. It's been absolutely well documented that the bicycle was this vehicle for emancipation for women. But um, just lots of people approach this from many different directions. Um, and um, I think the patenting was certainly a way of which women were making claims to different ways of moving in public, to making claims to uh, different forms of citizenship, you know, the freedom um, the freedom to move, the freedom to adopt new technologies, the freedom to make, um, uh, you know, advances within, you know, technology um, worlds and business worlds um, and to potentially, you know, um, carve out a completely different way of living that wasn't just beholden to, you know, who you married and where you lived or, you know, what kind of families or houses that you kept. So, yes, I think it's, definitely you know being documented that the bicycle you know was this opportunity and this you know hard fought um uh, means through which uh, women from all different directions were making claims to uh rights and patenting which is to possibly a lesser known way that this was happening as well now you mentioned that you were talking to cyclists 10 years ago and uh they were complaining about there not being cycling garments that were sort of good enough are there lessons developed in the 1890s that have been forgotten which might have been viable still today 
Yeah, I think there's lots of lessons in all of this. Um, and I often, you know, have, have talked about and written about the fact that um, I think we'd probably have much more interesting cycle wear today if um, these remarkable things from 130 years ago weren't forgotten you know you know we seem to when people hear about some of this and I demonstrate or they read some of it they're just like how can we don't know about this now imagine what would have happened if this was built on or expanded or further developed along the way to today you know we might have more um diverse expansive creative you know open ways of wearing different kinds of clothes on the bicycle that might be more open and um um kind of you know more embracing of different ways to cycle to move in public space to be a cyclist that isn't just in a way wearing your I guess your normal clothes which is fine if it works for you but more often cycle wear still today seems to fit particular bodies more than other bodies so yes yeah because the ideas you're talking about do seem more like better ideas than what we see today well you know when you see them there's still kind of the criticism that they do look quite cumbersome when you look at 1890s clothes and i think very few people would want to wear them exactly as they were then but what's super interesting to me is um when i made all the the sewing patterns that we made from the patents um uh, available as online open access downloadable sewing packs um and they are still up on the website for people to download and just to see what would happen because some people were asking for them and i was like sure you know absolutely go for it they've been downloaded seventy five thousand times in the last few years um which and i've just had you know messages from people um i've had pictures of what they've made people have turned up in uh, versions of things like they're just hacked like as I said people are incredibly creative yeah. in doing what they want to do and working around you know um, things that otherwise might restrict them and this became another way of which um, you know I, I've got this um, I've seen this evidence of this so some people of course are still making them as historical pieces to do dress-ups in some way which is fab but others are hacking at them, turning them into usable, you know, additions to their existing clothes to enable them to do, you know, solve the same problems that, you know, their foremothers were doing in the 1890s. As in, how do you wear something that you want to wear, um, but you want to ride safely and comfortably on the bicycle and then change when you when you lock your bike up and walk away from it? That sounds absolutely wonderful. I'd love to see a photo gallery of everyone that's made their versions and that must be so superb. Yeah. So from bikes to more general uh, women's activity wear, your latest project. Yeah, so I've... um... I've been very lucky to progress from that super lovely project into another one um, that I call Politics of Patents. So Bikes and Bloomers um, was a project that looked at a really, looked very deeply at a very small period of time. So I looked at the popularity of the bicycle and the bicycle boom in England from 1895 to 1899 and just dove straight into that. Um, And people kept on asking me when I gave talks, it's like, well, what happened afterwards? You know, yes. <laughs> but what then happened? 
And I'd be a bit like, I don't know, <laughs> but I'm super interested in what, as well. So I, I've got this opportunity now to see what, what happened before also and what happened afterwards. So Politics of Patents, or POP for short, um, explores 200 years of clothing inventions in um, in the patent archives, mostly in the European patent archives, but they're actually global. Um, it's just a remarkable um, aggregation of all sorts of digital data from, you know, I think 94 different patent uh, offices around the world. Okay. And I think they have about 120 million uh, free open access patents available for anyone to look at. Wow. Um, so that I thought was a great next step for me to dive into. Um, fortunately, sounds like a lot of work. Yes. <laughs> yes. It has kept me awake a lot as well, this kind of thing. Um, but it's, I had a, a, you know, a team, more people and a bit more time to do this because I got funded by the European um, Research Council, um, which uh, allows me to have um, five years to do this work, which has been really a dream. Um, and so what we ask now is just um, we're asking, you know, um, what, ha um, what do clothing inventions reveal about uh, conventional norms and beliefs like what are people identifying as problems at different points in time right. and how are they setting out to solve them um, can any clothing inventions be read as kind of acts of resistance to something you know, as, as <laughs> a, you know contestation or subversion so basically how are inventors using clothes to um, resist something to subvert or to reimagine different ways of being in the world and, you know, clothing is this remarkable technology, you know, that um, we everybody wears clothes, you know, that touches every single body. Um, and the way we dress, you know, the way we treat each other, the way we express ourselves, the way we claim expertise or responsibility or our culture or uh, our um, links to the past or our imaginings to the future – are, you know, very much kind of embedded in the things that we wear or the things that we, you know, dream of wearing. Um, so clothing became then something that I just kept on exploring and um, and I'm doing it even further within 200 years. So specifically, what sort of things are you finding of interest now? Well, there's, there's so many different themes. I'm obviously, you know, further further exploring sport and activewear. That's been a real focus for me. But I'm also looking at generally how have um, people attempted to kind of claim different rights um, and entitlements. And so I've been looking at clothes that, that, that just expand in terms of kind of claiming different footprints or um, uh, different space in society, quite literally, uh, to um, uh, – ways of which inventors this yeah i've been amazed by how for 150 years inventors all over the world have been um really caught up with um the problem of how to uh, relieve yourself in public um in a safe and convenient way moaning about the uh absence or um the hygienic lack of hygienic public facilities um, okay. And particularly for women, um, not wanting to either go into some of these toilets or not wanting to line up for a very long time. These are conventional problems, right? These are Still very today, contemporary yes. issues, <laughs> particularly, you know, given COVID and um, recent times where um, lots of public amenities were closed. And yet to leave your house was really, really shaped by how far your you could walk 
um, in terms of how far your bladder could hold, basically, if you couldn't find a toilet. So you're very much leashed Indeed. to the home. And I think, uh, you know, for many people, this is a reality, of course, but it became much more of a shared experience for, you know, larger parts of the population. But so the Patent Archive gives a great indication of how people have taken on these issues, these things that, you know, really affect, uh, you know, uh, sometimes a small part of the population, sometimes a much bigger part of the population, but invariably it'll, it'll touch all of us at some point in our lives at different times. And so inventors have highlighted, you know, some of these issues. And so we've been mapping what we call like the leaking citizen, you know, over 150 <laughs> years to see the ways in which people have attempted to resolve this problem. Um, uh, yeah, and there's much other, many more themes. I'm, I'm writing about this at the moment, so there'll be um, more pub, you know, publication coming out about this. What, what are the best and worst of of the, the ideas? <laughs> well, you know, there's lots of garments that just are about um, accessibility. So, you know, there are just different buttons, different um, uh, enclosures that enable you to actually dress and undress yourself in a in a fairly either. Um, subtle manner to enable you to you physically without any help to take your own clothes off let alone uh, you to be able to do this in a perhaps a semi-public space without having to for women particularly having to take all your clothes off usually to do a wee (laughs) can't believe i'm talking about this um but this this is an issue (laughs) this is a shared issue um so and so lots of them have these kind of um, really clever apron-y kind of uh, waistbands. So the front stays tied up and you just undo the back. And that's, uh-huh. Lots of skirts have those. Bloomers have those. Some of them have buttons as well to enable you to, you know, just keep yourself half covered while relieving yourself. Um, whereas, you know, it moves through to um, uh, lots of stand-up urination devices, you know, for people who either don't want to squat or can't squat, you know, the public toilets are at the wrong height for them or they're just, you know, unhygienic or you're just wanting to urinate in public and they, you know, go through uh, the ages as well. So there's just a, an incredible array of um, ways to address a fairly universal problem so for some parts of the population. But the the sport and active wear um, Expanding that from the 1890s and for cycling, I found really extraordinary. Um, We made um, recently a collection of costumes from what was called the golden age of um, sports. And I, you know, you could argue that was, you know, it expanded beyond 1890 to 1950. Uh, 1940, but I looked at particularly those 50 years recently and we made a collection of garments. Um, one from every 10 years of those because, again, just like the 1890s, um, lots of inventors were dealing with exactly the same problems. It may not have been just for the bicycle, but it was for the same issues, you know, how to look respectable in public space, not draw too much attention to yourself, um, but still be able to do the kind of sport and active uh, activities that you want to do in a safe and comfortable and convenient way. So we looked at um, cycling, of course. We looked at mountain climbing. We looked at um, early women um, pilots and aviatrixes. Um, and lots of these garments were for multiple things, which I found fascinating. So it might have been um, convenient to go cycling this garment, but the inventor's also about this is terrific for tobogganing or this is <laughs> – this is amazing if you go hunting as well and a bit of camping to throw that in there or you know or fishing or they were incredibly sporty and active and just wanted clothes that would uh 
you know, enable women to live the lives they wanted to live. Because all these activities were hampered by women having to wear the standard women's clothing of the time. Yes, absolutely. And just the criticism that they faced, you know, the stigma that they faced if they did you know, challenge a lot of that um, was, you know, quite significant and was really difficult to challenge depending on where you where you were, which part of the social strata you occupied or how brave you were, really, to withstand some of that um, extraordinary pressure. And these issues are still around today. You know, I, we recently made a whole collection of these garments as part of the speculative sewing practice and we're writing about them. Um, but I... Uh, collaborated with the brilliant um, Adventure Syndicate, which is a group of, um, uh, you know, um, adventurers, athletes, um, just, you know, people who love to do, you know, activities outside. They all happen to be uh, women and they live up in Scotland and they do um, fantastic, you know, um, just activities with all kinds of people. They do, you know, work with um, school kids and others who otherwise might not have the opportunity or even think that it's possible to, you know, um, be active beyond the very, you know, normative conventions of sport, um, which can be very alienating for some people if you think you don't fit or you're not a, a sporty person, which is, you know, it's a terrible binary of being non-sporty or sporty. So they try and mm. break those down about just do things with friends, go out and have an adventure, go and play outside. They're all about this. They try and challenge these very normative, you know, ideas that can um, restrict some people from participating. So um, I joined up with them and um, also More Diversity, which is also a fantastic organisation in Scotland, which is about more diversity in these kind oh. of um, sport and <laughs> activities. And that's uh, Anila McKenna. Um, and uh, we basically dressed them all up and they tried them all out doing all the sports in um, in the Scottish Hills in summer last year and we made a film about it. Um, I have seen the film and it is wonderful. <laughs> it, it, I couldn't believe we did that many sports in three days and I couldn't believe the range of weathers we had given it was meant to be summer. But we put the clothes to the test, that's for sure. Yeah, I was surprised to see the, the sleeting snow on the mountain uh, when you were out climbing. I know. I was actually in the aviatrix outfit, which I was a bit like, this is not meant for mountain climbing, and here I am <laughs> in the sleet. Yes, I was very cold. But, um, but yeah, so we all converted. They're all convertible, multiple, invisible, reversible garments. So we did a lot of converting. We'd go into a pub and dress in the conventional, you know, um, uh, attire, and then we'd transform it all and then run around and climb hills and, and ride horses and um, go for bike rides. Did onlookers realise what you were up to when you when you came into the pub, having converted into um, society's normative outfits for such pursuits? Did anyone well, sort of comment or realise? I think we obviously looked a little bit weird in a conventional um, pub setting in Scotland because we were so um, well dressed. Um, but uh, I still think um, we looked. Uh, we it, they still they did their work. They did their job because we did not look like we'd been out all day climbing a mountain on horses, you know, cycling. You know, we did not look like we'd really been rolling around the hills because they they covered up all the the mud and the and the grass stains and all sorts of other things that were on the um, 
on the sportswear that then got covered up when they transformed back to their um, more socially acceptable attire. So that, yes, I think worked and people didn't see that that was, um, uh, yeah, what we've been doing for the day. And the active people who joined you for the testing, I mean, what did they think of it? Did did it stand up to what they would have normally have worn today? Um, yes, yes and no. I mean, obviously quite cumbersome. You know, one of these garments had about five pieces to it, um, which, um, uh, you know, is more than the than, um, the person would have been normally wearing to do anything like this. But um, on the whole, you know, the sports where the elements of them, um, you know, it's it, – it, it worked, you know, it, it – the person who was wearing um, the um, uh, skirt, for example, that turned into breeches in order to go horse riding, was quite amazed that it, it was, you know, she was able to do this, and it held together really well. Um, and uh, likewise, uh, the cycling skirt um, was slightly different to the Alice Bygrave. It had it was also cords, but the cords were on the back of the skirt, and it had a number of hooks that enabled the wearer to um, raise the skirt to different heights depending on the type of bicycle they wanted to ride. So it had a lot of adaptability in it. Um, very uniquely, that skirt was um, was by a Scottish inventor, but she travelled to um, and lived in Melbourne and she actually invented it there. Um, but it has... Um, the, it has three cords and two of the cords are for a women's bike and the cord in the middle is should you choose to ride a man's bike at the time it actually changed the skirt again so it had real flexibility and quite radical hidden action in the skirt itself so that worked really well you know um, it, it raised it up and out of the wheel and they really did use these costumes hard over three days and I think we only lost one tassel and a couple of buttons so I consider that a success. And I was gratified to see that there was a lot of tweed going on there. And I did notice when one of the scenes you were filmed from behind all of you, and I noticed it was reflective as well. And I realized just where that tweed came from, i.e. last week's guest. <laughs> yes, we're a big fan of dashing tweeds here. Um, because, uh, you know, as I said, we're not trying to make perfect replicas of 1890s garments, but we're really interested in what they say um, you could be using and at the time of course lots of inventors were using all kinds of new things you know though if they could they you know had access to sewing machines you know a lot of them were um, of course you know they're patenting so they're using these kind of you know um, legal instruments to get their ideas out there they're um, they're writing opinion pieces in um, new periodicals at the time and being um, written about in newspapers they're really embracing lots of things including all kinds of new wools and weaves that were coming into into um, into where they were living so we also we also think that you know wool is a particularly good thing to be making these costumes out because they sit really well with that kind of weighted material but um, we also as practitioners now are embracing the kind of wools that we have available and the dashing tweeds with their reflective you know active wear range is um, is amazing it's such a delight to sew with and then the fact that I'm, uh, you know, the project itself is called Pop, and we're trying to highlight the inventions in these garments more so, perhaps, than the inventors because they were trying to, you know, they're trying to hide them. So that, mm. you know, where there's a delicate balance in there, we're trying to, but we try to showcase what they were doing, and we often do that with a reflective tweed. So then, when you shine a light on them, parts of the garment really um, glow, which uh, is very satisfying. 
it strikes me that all these designs, they must have so much more style than the sort of stuff we're making today. So if you were to make sewing uh, patterns for all this, I mean, it could become a whole new world of outdoor gear. Yeah, I mean, that's uh, yeah, it's an exciting thought, isn't it? I, could, I have to uh, confess that quite a lot of things that I've made is like um, – uh, mock-ups have become part of my own personal wardrobe <laughs> i do i do wear i'm a big fan of the bloomer i do think bloomers and, uh, yeah. and uh, knickerbockers are fantastic um so i do wear those quite a lot um rather than just keeping them to my research or performances and just by you know the the fact that you know 75,000 people have downloaded these patents and are making them um i think is indicative of yes it's potential and we're, we're making more of these um, patterns from um, a wider range of uh, inventions available, you know, in the, in the coming months and definitely in the next year. So, um, yeah, we'll see what will happen. It might sound like a strange comment, but as a matter, I'm quite, quite jealous of this project. Though I realise that, that it's because I'm a man that you, there is this project and then I'm all conflicted. But, yes, jealous. <laughs> Well, there were lots of um, there were lots of uh, male uh, allies at the time who were uh, making a lot of these inventions or supporting um, and enabling uh, in different ways. So there was a lot of networks of um, supporters, whether they were partners or patent agents or inventors themselves. So I do, you know, not all the inventors that I'm um, working with at the moment are all women, but um, and they're not all men's, not all women's clothes. But I just have to say that women's clothing tends to be much more inventive because of the sheer problems that they've had to resolve you know through clothing so that's why that focus has continued a little bit more within the pop project even though that's not the total focus but um what we're also really um uh, you know advocating now is that these solutions aren't just for women's clothes you know they are solutions that can be across a whole range of different clothing you know and um, we're embracing the fact that you know there is so much more flexibility in some ways for all sorts of ways that people can dress that isn't such you know a definitive binary of those victorian ideals that women had to wear this outfit in order to perform a particular type of gendered identity that was recognized and respected um, whereas now because of the hard-fought battles that they um what have won and i think we are still you know this is not a, a fight that is finished um uh, there's certainly much more flexibility in the clothes that we get to wear in some places in the world, certainly not at all in all places, um, but there is you know, more diversity. And I think the more people, and particularly men who expand, you know, the, the types of clothes that you could wear, um, then that would be better for everybody. So I can go seeking in the patterns I've curves for uh, uh, coats that suit expanding middle-aged men and there'll be something there. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely absolutely yes oh, sounds uh sounds very uh amusing i wonder if there was a sort of peak year or decade of technicality when mm. the sort of amount of strings and bells and whistles and buttons and things sort of peaked before it started going down because clothes nowadays seem to have gone through a basically a simplification process where everything's just making it cheaper and easier and 
Mm. Yeah, I think the, when I mapped this out, first of all, I said I will do 200 years, 1820, which is some of the first, um, uh, not first, but some of the you know, more of the patterns to become available through to 2020. I thought that's a neat 200 years. But really, um, the most interesting patterns um, tend to be around, you know, particular social and political or technological or other happenings at times. So obviously the bicycle was this significant moment which really just put a, put a problem on a stage. You know, women have been complaining about clothes for quite a long time, but then suddenly the bicycle, um, you could not ride a bicycle. Well, you could, but it was very um, dangerous and difficult in clothes. So it became this real watershed moment. Yeah. And then... The vehicle, the motor vehicle um, at the turn of last century became another amazing moment for clothing because you had a very different series of problems for an open vehicle that you're exposed to, you know, speed, you know, the weather, insects, um, how to carry things, um, uh, and then still look appropriate when you arrive somewhere. So that's a really interesting moment of, of technological advancement within clothing. Um, and then around this, of course, um, we have wars, which is about um, different kinds of challenges, particularly for a broader range of clothing, um, a, a resource issue. You know, again, you've got like, how do you make things do more than one thing? So convertible and combinable clothing is really remarkable um, around those two periods. Um, and all through this, then you've got, you know, uh, you know planes um, and what happens when people start to fly. Um, and that's fantastic. So, yeah, mapping these kind of like particular moments became um, really extraordinary. So I think my focus at the moment for the really – amazing technological advancements particularly in what i'm looking at because there are so, there is so much there but i'm really interested in the things that are convertible combinable and hidden for you know the chances to claim or make or take space that otherwise you don't get given legally in some way um that is really mapping more around 1890 1880 to 1950 you mentioned aviators again uh you were wearing a very fetching uh, grey aviator's tweed uh, vest in the in the video. I, I must yes. make myself one. Um, have there been any sort of developments, say, after 1940, which have impacted clothes in any sort of relatable way? Um, pockets. There are a lot of pockets all the way through the archive. Um, about 25,000 patents for pockets we have in our particular data set um, pockets have been a problem um, that needed to be addressed by all people for all purposes throughout time it seems are, are um, these spare pockets or uh, additional uh, pockets or uh, pockets you can add to your existing clothes or all the pockets and particularly for people who um uh, weren't given pockets they were additional pockets um, or there were pockets for specific purposes or there were pockets to prevent pickpocketing or they were um, pockets that were just put into places that you wouldn't expect so while men's um, pockets tend to be in fairly conventional places such as chests and hips um, and, and they're still remarkable because they all they are for uh, like at the turn of last century there was a huge issue with pickpocketing so all the inventions to prevent that 
that's a remarkable thing, even though the pockets themselves, their positions are as you'd expect. Whereas women's pockets go from um, stockings through to hats. They're on every garment possible in every <laughs> configuration, doing all kinds of manner of curious um, uh, things for the wearers because women have very rarely had the pockets that they want in order to live the lives that they lead. It's interesting because a lot of jackets and waistcoats and trousers now are suddenly seeing a resurgence of a massive amount of pockets, but really pockets have been a thing all the while and it's nothing new. They've been a thing um, in men's clothes for a long time. Women have always kind of had to ask or to add them on or to hack them or to, you know, complain about them in some way, I think. Mm. Um, so the fact that the uh, many, even if it's not particularly just a pocket patent, like a lot of the garments that I've been investigating, like, um, you know, a lot of the sportswear, the inventor goes to lengths as to put a pocket in part of the invention or to um, just for some reason, they well, not for some reason, it's very clear, they, they just draw pockets on just as in <laughs> that's where the pocket goes. It's not part of the invention. It's just like, well, clearly you'll want a pocket, so this is where you should put it. So pockets are very present um, because they just recognize that these are important in order to have hands-free, in order to live an independent mobile life, uh, you need to be able to carry things and not be burdened um by um uh you know the restrictions of not being able to have things on you that you need hmm. so where is the project at now and what is happening going forward has it been completed uh, uh no we're actually um in the process of um um preparing a new collection um of um garments that um, are throughout the entire project. As I said, we've done a sportswear collection and we've, we're making a lot of pockets at the moment um, and we're doing... We're, we're, Always the pockets. We're, well, lots of pockets. I made a fantastic uh, 1963 um, uh, invention of a hat with a pocket in it, which is just incredible. I do love this. I think I might have to start wearing that around personally because it is just very clever but we're making a collection at the moment for a collaboration with a feminist uh, theatre company called Scary Little Girls um, that uh, is performing um, performing all of them so bringing them all to life and telling the stories um, that we've been researching in um, in you know in really interactive and um, compelling ways while dressed in the costumes so that's going to be quite an exciting collaboration. Um, and there's just, yeah, more things coming up in the next year. So it, they'll be announced on the website and on our social media. Will there be a big picture book and showing all the best stuff? Yes, we've actually got two books coming out. One, um, it, which we actually uh, interviewed 50 um live inventors, contemporary people who are doing really inventive stuff with clothing today that we um, that we've because we you know we're not all about just the history we're also like what how are these ideas still issues that are being addressed today because obviously we're just working up to you know 2020 2021 so then the inventors we spoke to all around the world talking to them about what they're doing now and for the future trying to change the world stitch by stitch in some way um, and that book is called wearable utopias and should be out later in the year 
and uh, and another book um, which is about the history of all of this. So mapping the garments and these problems and their innovative solutions um, will be out next year. I can't wait to read them. <laughs> I'm just so so all in on this that it's. Uh, uh, I want to start going through uh, patents myself now and uh, finding some good stuff. And it sounds like such a immense and um, possibly uh, large source of information. Mm. But I'm very gratified to hear that there are still people inventing good stuff today because it seems to me that there's just so much copy pasting today and it, mm -hmm. just find something vintage in the archives and change the colour and knock it out. But there are actually people still inventing. Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm probably more for using the word inventing because that's the parlance of the research that I do. But um, they would probably call themselves a whole range of things from, you know, designers to um, to inventors. But yes, they are all doing kind of really innovative stuff for a real diverse range of people um, to address issues in their lives that otherwise they... Um, you know, what might be restricting things that they want to do. So it's a whole range of really exciting um, types of garments, I think. And the way they talk about them, you know, they're really into um, the challenges that people face and the ways in which they're um, addressing those to kind of make their, um, just what they, just help them to do what they want to do in different capacities. Um, and some of them are really small and modest interventions, and some of them are really significant things. So they're addressing issues from, um, uh, you know, like how to protect um, uh, your personal data while being in public space. So these are clothes for, you know, um, data protection. So they're like pretty much Faraday cages, you know, as clothing, um, through to people who... Um, uh, about you know urinating in public, you know, like the shiwi, for example. The pissing, yeah. Yep, yep. <laughs> Find it fascinating. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. It's a universal thing. Well, I mean, with all these festivals and whatnot going on now. Uh... Exactly. Yes. Exactly. Exactly. But we'll be um, uh, for the history part of the project. We'll, as I said, we'll have um, patents available for people, and we'll probably be doing some sew-alongs and, you know, um, be encouraging anyone who wants to try some of these things out. And I think some of them, re I think some of them are even more useful than the 1890 cycle wear, even though obviously that's certainly um, been appreciated by a range of people. Okay, Kat. This was an incredibly inspiring and wonderful conversation. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you very much for the invitation. It was great to talk to you. And bye-bye uh, for now. And that's all for this week's episode of Garmology. If you'd like to check out my guest further, there's links in the show notes. There's also links to uh, how you can uh, support the pod by buying me a cup of coffee, which is perfectly optional. I'm just pleased you're listening. If you'd like to get in touch, suggest a guest, just let me know what you think. It's uh, welldressedad at gmail.com. You can follow me on Instagram as welldressedad. So until next week, bye-bye.